I guess I should do at least a, a little bit of a brief introduction before I read the book in order for you to understand it. The epistle to Philemon was written during Paul's first imprisonment. He's a prisoner in Rome. And the word prisoner is going to come up over and over again in verse 1, in verse 3, in verse 7, in verse 13, and in verse 22, and in verse 23. And scholars place this little book in the section that's known as the prison epistles. And so this book was written at the same time that books like Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians were written. The year is about 60 or 61 AD. Nero is the emperor of Rome. And the young Jesus movement is about in its third decade. It's a young movement. And so Paul is going to be writing a letter to Philemon, who is a leader of a church in Colossae. And did you get a, a map? Did you find the, the journeys? Let's put that map up. Paul is going to write this while he's in prison in Rome. And if you look all the way to the right in that area that's called Asia and Pamphylia, you'll see Pergamum and Ephesus. I don't know if Colossae is, is located on the map. But Onesimus is a runaway slave and he's going to run away from his master. And he's going to make his way north to Asia, into Bithynia, across the Hellespont, through Thrace, over to Greece, all the way up to what was called Illyricum, and then come down to Rome and follow the ancient road. He's running for his life. And he's going to find himself in Rome. And Rome is a city of over a million people. And as circumstances unfold, he's going to meet the rabbi, pastor, who's in jail, named Paul. And the runaway slave is going to get saved. And now his past is going to come back because he's run away, he knows that he has to deal with that broken relationship. Philemon. We begin in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Apphia, our Chippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you. 
being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, whom I've begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you. Therefore, receive him. That is my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I didn't want to do Nothing that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for you for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you count me as a partner... Receive him as you would me. But if he's wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay. Not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you. Knowing that you'll do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me. For I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. As do Mark. Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. The story actually really begins at the very close of Acts chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. For those of you who are familiar with both the book of Luke and the book of Acts, it's a compilation of the story, not only of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but of the unfolding drama of the adventures and the journeys of Paul the Apostle. He finds his way through a series of circumstances, arrested in Jerusalem. He makes his way to Caesarea, where he spends two years pleading with the, 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 the local authorities to be let go, but they refuse to release him. And so he exercises his rights as a Roman citizen, and he appeals to the emperor Nero himself to hear his case. And in Acts chapter 28, verse 30, we read, then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. He's under house arrest in Rome, awaiting trial. And as he is in house arrest awaiting trial, he's writing the book of Ephesians. He's writing the book of Philippians. He's writing the book of Colossians. And he puts this tender note, this 
personal correspondence also in a group of letters that he's sending to both Ephesus, Colossae, and Philippi. The letter is personal and the letter is powerful. Now I want you to somewhat think with me for just a moment what an exciting thing it would be if we could interview Paul the Apostle. Imagine we could reflect on his life and his ministry and he asks you a question. Tell me about the church in Philippi. Tell me about the church in Ephesus. Tell me about the church in Colossae. And you have to give him the sad news that they're ruins. I've been to each and every one of these places. And I would say, hey, guess what? The ministries that you've started in all of those places, tourists come and they visit those places. But the church is gone. And he might look at you. And he, he might say, well, then why do people go there? And you say to him, because of the letters you wrote while you were in jail that have stood the test of time and that have come down through the ages. You see, almost one-third of the Bible that was written by you is studied by Christians all over the world and the life and the love and the encouragement and the hope and the instruction that it gives is important to each and every one of us. Paul, the most important thing that you ever did was go to jail and write letters that affected the world forever. It's hard to put things in perspective, isn't it? This letter is personal and powerful. The letter includes praise for Philemon in verses 4 through 7, a plea to Philemon in verses 8 through 17, and then a pledge to Philemon. In verses 18 through 21, it would appear that one of Philemon's slaves, Onesimus, has run away from his master's house. He's made his way to Rome. Philemon lived in a place called the Lycus Valley in a town called Colossae in modern Turkey. In a series of events unknown to us, Onesimus is born again in verse 10. He's born again, and the question arises, now what? What's Onesimus to do? What do we do when our past comes back to haunt us? Slavery was common in the Roman Empire, but slavery in the Roman Empire wasn't like slavery in the 17th and 18th centuries in the Americas. And so the letter isn't a defense or a condemnation of Roman slavery, but it's an appeal by Paul to forgive the runaway slave. And under Roman law, stealing from your master and then running away was punishable by death. And so Paul is going to appeal to Philemon with courtesy and tact and delicacy and generosity. Most scholars believe that Philemon probably was a Christian, obviously, who had come from Colossae and somehow made his way to the treasure city of Ephesus while Paul was preaching in Ephesus. He enters into a right relationship with God in Christ. He goes back to his home, he and his wife and his son, and they have a household. So it would appear that of 
the most incredible thing. Paul knows Philemon. Now think about this. Onesimus, the runaway slave, finds his way in Rome, somehow hears the preaching of Paul and gets wonderfully saved. And someone, maybe Demas or or Mark or Luke, they go, aren't you Onesimus? Weren't you a member of, of the household of Philemon? And then they discover that he'd run away and maybe that he'd even stolen money from the master in order to make the journey. So what is Paul to do? Paul's willingness to appeal to Philemon for his friend and to welcome him as he would welcome Paul becomes a type and a picture of the sacrifice that Jesus himself makes. And so what about you? Have you ever done anything in your past that all of a sudden comes back into your present and reminds you of the life that you used to live? Maybe it's a broken friendship or a broken relationship. Maybe it's a bad debt. It might have even been criminal activity. You read the Bible. You read the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, where it says, If any person is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. And yet some of those sins still haunt you. And you wonder if you're going to have to pay for the rest of your life. Are there areas in your life, whether relational or personal or financial or spiritual, that require the recognition of injury and the realization of sin and the possibility of reconciliation? And so Paul will make an appeal And as he makes the appeal, it begins with appreciation for Philemon. Look what it says in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer. It's interesting to me that Paul manages to accomplish more in prison than most Christians accomplish in a lifetime. One of the truly frustrating things is to see someone so inspirational like Johnny Erickson Tata, who is paralyzed from the neck down in a horrible diving accident. But she manages to write books and give the gospel. All the while, her body is imprisoned. Paul calls himself a prisoner. What's interesting, again, in the original language for you Bible students who like this kind of stuff, the word prisoner is the Greek word desmaios. That may not mean a whole lot to you, but it comes from two root words, deo, which means bound, and, or, which means to bind. And so when he says, Paul, a prisoner, He doesn't say a prisoner of Rome or a prisoner of Nero, but he characterizes his circumstances as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul refuses to characterize his circumstances as bad luck or fate. 
But he understands that his life is hidden in Christ and that the circumstances of his life are driven sovereignly and completely by God. Paul claims to be Christ's prisoner and is a prisoner of the gospel. Paul elsewhere will say, are, as, he's, as he's dealing with slaves and free people, he says, are you a slave? Then you are free in Christ. Are you free? Then guess what? You are Christ's slave. Paul reminds us of the presence of Timothy, that Timothy is with him. And then he calls Philemon a beloved friend and fellow laborer, which seems to indicate a laborer in the gospel, that he is a minister. And I think, again, Paul, when he says, you're my friend and you're my laborer, I think he, he means it. Because some of you might be thinking, I think that Paul's just greasing the wheels. He's, he's buttering up Philemon in anticipation of this huge request. And by the way, if you're going to ask someone for something huge, doesn't it make sense to sort of be nice to them? But we have every reason to believe that Philemon is a man of real love and real faith. Greet those who love us in the faith, Paul writes to Titus in chapter 3, verse 15. John's gospel and the letter that we just went through together in 1 John, you'll remember that John reminds the brethren that the best evidence of friendship and fellowship and relationship is true love for each other. And so he says in verse 2, to the beloved Apphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Most Bible scholars believe these are references to Philemon's wife, Apphia, their son, Archippus. Literally, Apphia is called beloved, or literally in the original language, it says she's the sister. Archippus is mentioned in Colossians chapter 4, verse 7, where Paul writes, and say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you've received in the Lord so that you may fulfill it, unquote. And so he's writing to Colossae, Philemon is there, Apphia is there, Archippus is there. Remember, they don't have cathedrals and, and big auditoriums where they have church. Church meets in the home, in their home. And it would appear that Archippus played a prominent role in the ministry of the church at Colossae and the house of Philemon. And so you can imagine that Philemon, his wife, and his son are going to be deeply concerned about this issue, this matter at hand. And so Paul writes, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a common expression in all of Paul's letters. Grace preceding peace. Grace becoming the mechanism whereby we can experience peace with God. We're saved by grace. We're kept by grace. It provides peace for us. And so Paul writes in verse 4, I thank God, I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers. Paul made it a point to pray for those in the faith and to pray for those 
in his life and pray for those who were in his past. And I think that that's interesting. And in verse 5, he says, Hearing of your love and faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. I want to draw something quickly to your attention. When Paul speaks of, I've heard of your love, I've heard about your faith, and note two things about that love and faith. In one sense, it's towards the Lord Jesus. And in another sense, it's towards everyone around them. And that becomes an important point. It's love that's upward to Christ, and it's love that's outward to others. And so now think about this. Paul is saying of Philemon, your love and your faith isn't just something you theologically contain in your head or that you've written about or that you're notorious about, that you have all of the right thinking and all of the right teaching and all of the right doctrine. And don't get me wrong, teaching and doctrine is important. But he says it's a kind of love and it's a kind of faith that's expressed in real relationship. And look what it says in verse 6, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you, in Christ Jesus. That the sharing of your faith, I want you to note that just for a moment. Philemon not only has faith, but he shares his faith. In what sense? What does this mean? Does it mean sharing the gospel in the sense of passing out tracts or or personal witnessing? I'm going to suggest to you that I think it includes that, but it's not limited to that. It isn't just simply telling other people about Jesus, but I also think it means practical kindness that he shows to others. He doesn't just simply share his beliefs about Jesus, but he participates in practical expressions of kindness to such an extent that it becomes a matter of public knowledge. And when he says that the sharing of your faith may become effective, The word effective in the original language is very, very interesting. It means go to work. Go to work. These are expressions of kindness that really work and are a blessing to others. And the word acknowledgement is also interesting. When it says that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. The word acknowledgement means having a precise or correct understanding, a precise or correct knowledge of every good thing. The idea seems to be that Philemon has been taught well by Paul over those two years that he spent with his wife and his son in Ephesus before they planted the church in Colossae. Why do we believe that? Because there was no evidence up until this point that Paul had ever been to Colossae, but that he had been to Ephesus, but that he has a personal relationship with this family. Here, acknowledgement of every good thing means a full understanding, a right knowledge of all of the benefits that come 
from being in Christ Jesus. And so he says in verse 7, For we have great joy and consolation in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. And so in these few verses, we discover that Philemon was a man of love and a man of faith, of practical kindness, love and faith in Jesus, a love and a faith that made a difference in the hearts of the saints, having been refreshed. And the hearts of the saints translates the word splonknon. It's an interesting word. It's found here in verse 7. It's, the word, it's again found in verse 12. It's again found in verse 20. In the old King James, it translates a word, bowels. Or what you and I would call intestines. Yeah, but that's hard. Bowels and intestines because you go, what? What are you talking about? Well, in that culture and, and circumstance, the inward parts was a term that the Greek people would use very much like we use the term guts. Have you ever heard someone say, I hate your guts? It's their way of saying, I hate your innards. The Greeks believed that powerful affection originated in your internal organs. But here Paul, of course, means inward affection. And that's why it's translated the hearts of the saints. In other words, he's making reference to the seat of emotion with a specific emphasis on affection. And now he springs it, his plea for Onesimus. Look what it says in verse 8. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting. The word command is a strong word. Epi, tasso. It's a compound word, which means to order or to demand compliance. It's Paul's way of saying, you know what? I think I could pull the apostolic card. I think I could use apostolic authority or pastoral authority to demand compliance. But Paul pleads, not on the basis of authority, but on the basis of love. He, he doesn't say, I'm going to make you do this because I'm over you. He says, I'm going to plead with you to do it on the basis of love. Again, Warren Wiersbe points out the futility of insisting that people do the right thing based on just simple courtesy. He writes, quote, for one thing, it would not help Philemon grow in grace or gain a real blessing from the experience Law is a much weaker motivation than love. And Paul wanted Philemon to broaden his spiritual understanding. This is why Paul uses the word beseech in verse 9. Wiersbe writes. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But think about what's being said. Paul is asking for a consideration based on love. In verse 9 it says, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. 
being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Paul prefers love as the chief motivation in the decision-making process. What do you want me to do? I want you to do the loving thing, the gracious thing. Are you going to make me do this? No. I'm going to give you the freedom to make the choice. Hoping and praying that you'll make a choice based on love. Our translation uses the word appeal. Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. Paul makes an appeal. I want you to think about this for a moment. He says, I'm appealing to you based on at least two things. Well, actually three things. I'm appealing to you on the basis of love. I'm appealing to you on the basis of age. And I'm appealing to you on the basis of incarceration. By the way, how old is Paul at this point? There were separate words that's used in the Greek language to describe someone under a certain age, like an infant or a young person or an adolescent. The word that Paul uses here, the aged, is a very specific word in the Greek language that would refer to someone who is between the age of 53 and 63. Now that might seem a little harsh for those of you between the ages of 53 and 63 to be characterized by the word aged. But you've got to understand something. In that culture and society, people didn't live for a very long time. And so by every ancient measure, Paul is an old dude. And by the way, some Bible scholars, again, estimate his age somewhere between 53 and 63. And so in verse 10, he says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I've begotten while in my chains. He comes to the heart of the appeal. Guess what? Your runaway slave, he's been born again. I've led him to Christ. He's entered into a right relationship with Christ. With God in Christ. Now remember what we read in the book of Acts. How Paul had a rented house. And he invited everyone. He invited everyone. Anyone who was willing to listen to G about Jesus. Could Romans come and hear about Jesus? The answer is yes. Could free people come and hear about Jesus? Yes. Could slaves come and hear about Jesus? The answer is yes. Everyone was welcome. Paul knew that God saved sinners, even runaway slaves, even people with a checkered background, even with people who don't necessarily pass a background check. And so in verse 11, it says, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. He's doing a, a wordplay. By the way, in that world and that culture, the name Onesimus meant useful. Isn't that interesting? His name means useful. My name, Gino, means the cattle have all died. No, that's not the meaning of my name. Gino is a nickname in Italian for Giuliano. And Giuliano comes from a Latin word which means the blowing wind. Take what you will from that. 
But here's the point. When he says he's, he once was unprofitable, but now he's profitable. I want you to think about what Paul is saying. What profit is there with a runaway slave? There's none. He's, he's gone. I don't know if you've ever owned something that was really valuable or really expensive and it broke or it was in an accident or it collapsed or it was lost. You had something and it was really, really important to you and it was really, really valuable to you and then it disappears. Jesus changes lives. And so I think part of the point that Paul is making is Onesimus has run away. But the person who was in your house and the person who's run away has become a different person. Look what it says in verse 12. I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him. That is my own heart. Why is Paul sending him back? Because he wants to do what's right. He wants to honor God and honor Philemon, but all at the same time create an atmosphere where Onesimus can be received back. Remember, 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 the penalty for stealing, death. The penalty for running away, we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But I want to draw your attention to a word here that's maybe the most important word in our little text. The word receive. It means way more than just take him back. It's a word that means to judge him appropriately. He's saying, I need you to receive him. In Romans, when he writes to the, the book of Romans, he says, receive one of those who is weak in the faith. Paul's admonition is receive each other. Don't reject each other. Receive each other. But here, again, it means to judge appropriately. Paul points out Onesimus is born again in verses 10 and 11. He's ready to face his past. He's ready to, to right the wrong in verses 12, 13, and 14. He's a changed man in verses 15 and 16. He can be received and trusted because just like he would receive and trust Paul. And so in verse 13, it says, whom I wished to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. Paul's revealing his true intention. He's saying he's useless to you, but he's useful to me. He's born again. I want him here with me. I need him here with me. He wants to keep him close by. Paul's in a difficult situation. He's in a rented room. He's with a Roman soldier. He is in slaves. He is awaiting trial. And Nero is an absolute lunatic. He will take Christians at a whim and he will impale them on a stake. He will put them in pitch and then he will light them on fire. He was known to take Christians and sew them up in animal skins and take them out into the arena and watch the wild dogs rip them apart. And so anything could happen. 
But Paul says, but without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. You note that in this text, there's nothing manipulative, coercive. Notice that Paul doesn't threaten him, and he doesn't say, oh, by the way, Philemon, I'm an apostle, and you're going to rot in hell unless you do exactly as I say. He's appealing to him. Out of love, out of patience, out of kindness. And in verse 15, he says, For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. I want you to think about what you just read. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. Think for a moment, pause for a moment, ask yourself this question. Why did Onesimus run away? Philemon probably wants to know. His wife probably wants to know. The son wants to know. Hey, is it possible that he was being abused in the household? Is it a horrible and terrible place to be? We could cite any number of reasons. It makes perfect sense to us living in our culture, in our society, that whatever else slavery seems to indicate it's not something that you want doesn't it make sense to a free person that you don't want to be in bondage and that you don't want to be enslaved and if you were in bondage and you were enslaved wouldn't you run away what's interesting is the reason isn't given the suggestion is intimated that he might have stole money in verse 18 And what slave desires slavery? But Paul knew that the matter had to be resolved. And so, for the Christian, confession of sin and reconciliation and restoration aren't an option. It's necessary. Paul knows that these are all important things that are going to have to happen because something has happened that needs to be fixed. Before coming to Jesus, you may have made some pretty poor choices. Maybe even coming to Christ after you made some bad choices. Even sinful choices. Paul knew that the damage was done, but that some effort had to be made in order to make the situation right. And it may even mean that Onesimus knew that the damaged relationship had to be right that he's come to Christ he realizes that this is a damaged relationship and it can't continue in the awful way that it's that it's been up until this point and so Onesimus is facing this terrible terrible situation he's a runaway slave in a world where runaway slaves have no rights slaves were in a situation much like illegal aliens in our own culture and society Illegal aliens can suffer from all kinds of indignities and abuses and because they're already here and because it's already a secret and because there's already a problem, sometimes they become victims. Slaves were thought of as living tools to be used by their master and a master had absolute freedom to do with the slave as he or she wished and slaves 
were under the control of the master. And a master had absolute freedom to do whatever they wanted. And slaves were expensive. A worker slave could be bought for about 500 denarii. That's about two years salary. Slaves who were doctors, slaves who were teachers, slaves who were actors, slaves who were stewards. These are highly skilled managers could sometimes be sold for as much as 10,000 to 50,000 denarii. And, And I want you to think about that. Because if a denarii is a day's wage, then that means 50,000 days. So now you begin to understand just how important it could have been. And a master could kill a slave for just about any cause. But do you think that that's what they did? If you have a Ferrari, when the Ferrari doesn't start, or if you have a Porsche, do you beat it to death because it doesn't start? Do you take a racehorse that cost you a quarter of a million dollars and shoot it in the head? You don't take expensive things and then destroy them. But slaves were subject to all manner of humiliation and indignity and abuse and exclusion. One writer put it this way, quote, What makes it worse was that slaves were deliberately put down, unquote. They, there were in the Roman Empire... When Paul is writing these words, by some estimates, it could be as little as 60 million slaves. Some have even put the number up to 100 million. But I want you to think about this. If in the Roman Empire there were some 60 million slaves... If you take every human being who lives in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico, you still haven't, you're not even halfway there yet. So we're talking about a lot of slaves. The danger of revolt was a constant danger. By the way, the Spartacus revolt took place in 73 BC. It was still fresh in the memories of most of the people. And so it wasn't unusual for them to take extraordinary means to make sure that slaves didn't run away. And by the way, if a slave did run away, the master would often take them and brand their forehead. And they would put the initial F on their forehead. The F stood for the word fugitivus. You know that word. We get the word fugitive from it. And the word in the Latin language meant someone who was running away from justice. Now I want you again to think of the world in which he's living in. And he's made it all the way from Turkey, all the way from Rome. He's walked on the roads. He's been on the roads of Rome. As he's walked past people, it wouldn't have been unusual to see another person with that wicked F branded on their forehead, constantly reminding him. And Paul provides a hint that there might have been a twinge of guilt in the heart of Onesimus. But also Paul provides yet another hint that maybe these things have happened because God had a plan and he wanted to bring Onesimus into a right relationship with him as the Savior. Paul gives us a hint. Some things are temporal. Some things are forever. 
Paul is making the outrageous suggestion that maybe he left to avoid hell. Maybe he ran away so that he could live forever. Did he run away so that he could be saved? Did he run away so that he could serve Paul in maybe one of the most difficult and treacherous circumstances of his life? Paul was facing hardship and pain. And Onesimus brought him at least some measure of relief. And so he says, forgive him for your sake. And forgive him for his sake. And forgive him for my sake. Look what it says in verse 16. No, forgive him for his sake. Verse 16, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave. A beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. In other words, now that he's come into a right relationship with God in Christ, now that he's willing to, to honor God and reflect the character of Christ, he's going to be more useful than he's ever been useful. And he's clearly useful to me. So forgive him for his sake. And then in verse 17, he says, if then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would receive me. Paul reminds Philemon of their partnership. Look, we share Christ. We share the ministry. We're partners in friendship. We're partners in fellowship. The, the New Testament has told us to put on Christ, but his boldness is matched by his tenderness. Again, if you then count me as a partner, receive him. The word is different here than the other word receive. Here in the original language, the word receive means receive like you would your own family. Now, obviously, when you meet with people, if it's your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, a son, a daughter, or a grandchild, in most cultures, doesn't family mean something? You don't turn your family away. And so Paul basically says, receive him as you would receive me. It's Paul's way of saying, what are your plans for him? Are you going to beat him? Brand him? Because whatever it is that you've decided to do to him, I want you to know that it's exactly what you would do for me. Paul's plea is, whatever you decide, whatever your decision is, I just want you to know that it's the same decision that you would do for me. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, 40, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Jesus said, if you receive Jesus, you're receiving God the Father. And if you, if you are received, it's the same as receiving Jesus. So again, does this mean that Onesimus gets a free ride? Does this mean that he shirks his duty? Does this mean that there's no obligation? Does this mean that he magically, fundamentally ceases to be a servant in the house? household I don't think that that's at all what it means and so Paul gives an assurance and a pledge he says but if he has wronged you or owes you anything put that on my account 
Particularly for the person who's reading the letter and they're asking the question, well, what about the money that he took? Or what about the injury? Or what about the loss of business? It could have been that Onesimus was a doctor or a lawyer or a a, a steward. He was, by the way, there were servants, there were slaves who generated vast amounts of money for their master. What about restitution? What about the loss? The verse doesn't come right out and claim that Onesimus stole anything. But in the event that he might have stolen something, coming to Christ didn't cancel all of the slave's debt. In what sense? Did it cancel his sin debt? Yeah. Was he going to get to go to heaven? Yeah. But did that magically make whatever he did go away? No, just like it doesn't magically make what you did go away. But know what Paul does. He offers a guarantee to pay the debt owed by Onesimus and then a gentle reminder of the spiritual debt owed by Philemon. And then he asks Philemon to keep a room available for him. And look what it says in verse 19. Paul, I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay Not to mention that you owe me even your own self besides. Now, I want you to think about this IOU that he just wrote. This is an ancient IOU. This is a promissory note. This is a promissory note that Philemon could have taken to the Roman courts in Colossae and say, this is a promissory note. This is a legal and a binding note that you are entering in to a promise to repay me whatever insult or injury might have taken place. But Paul adds to the note, oh, by the way, who led you to Christ? That was me. Why are you going to heaven instead of hell? Because I presented the gospel to you. It becomes the perfect picture of Jesus. Jesus finds us as runaway slaves and lawbreakers and rebels. He forgives us. He pays our debt. And then he identifies with us. This, by the way, is the doctrine called imputation. The word imputation means to put on one's account. The idea is all of the wicked, sinful things that you've ever done, ever. Jesus says, write that on my account. I will be the satisfying solution to every wrong and wicked and horrible and terrible thing that you did. Oh, and by the way, you get to draw from my account. What what are we going to draw? Oh, I'm going to make all of my righteousness available to you. So here's, here's the deal of imputation. He takes all of your sin. And then he gives you all of his righteousness. I want you to just let that soak in for a minute. Our sins are placed on Christ's ledger. His righteousness is placed on our account. And in verse 20, he says, Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Onesimus is a brother. A brother is more than a slave. Onesimus is not just simply a brother, and he's not just simply above a slave. He's of value to Paul. And now he's of much more value to Philemon. 
He says, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Will Philemon's obedience include forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation? Is Paul making a veiled request? Hey, not only do I think you're going to take him back, and not only do I think that you're going to forgive him, and not only do I think that all of this is going to happen, I, I think that maybe you should even let him go free so that he can come back and minister to me. Is that going to happen? Look what Paul says, interestingly enough, in verse 22. But, meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I'll be granted to you. Think about what he's saying. I'm in jail in a Roman prison facing almost a certain death sentence from Nero. What do you think the chances of getting his money back are? Yeah, I heard someone say zero, and I think you're right. But, you know what happens in history? Paul is released. The prayers are answered. He says, but meanwhile, prepare a guest room for me. I, I want you to think about what's happening. Epaphras shows up. He has the letter to the Ephesians. He has the letter to the Colossians. He has, well, the letter to the Philippians has already been dropped off. He has this letter as well. They are containing the gold mines of Christianity. And there's Onesimus with him as he's reading the letter and his runaway slave is standing in front of him as if Paul is going to say, oh, by the way, when Onesimus comes back to you, his first official duty is for Philemon to say to Onesimus, prepare a room for Paul because he's on his way. Put him back to work. He says, Epaphras, my fellow servant in Christ Jesus, greets you. Why? Most scholars believe Epaphras was the pastor of the church at Colossae. And he too is in jail. He may have been the person who planted the church, according to Colossians chapter 1, verse 7. Again in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. He mentions Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. These are all going to be people that you are familiar with. Mark, Demas, Luke. These are names mentioned in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, and again in verse 14. Jesus, called Justice, is also mentioned in, Col in Col Colossians, but is omitted here. Mark, everybody knows. He's the author of the Gospel of Mark. And he proved reliable, even though Barnabas and Paul had their rift, but now they're reconciled to each other. Aristarchus was a believer from Thessalonica who would accompany Paul on several journeys. In Colossians 4.10, Paul calls him my fellow prisoner. Demas would later abandon Paul, forsake Paul, according to 2 Timothy 4.10, because he loved this present world. And Luke's name is familiar to everyone. He's Paul's faithful companion right up to the end. And he says in verse 25, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Thank God for grace. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve faced each other in fellowship. After the fall, God and man turned from each other. But at Calvary, God through Christ in grace turns his face back towards one another. And the ultimate reconciliation takes place. People who have been broken and hurt are able to have a right relationship with God. By the way, 
We're about done. Would you like to know how the story ended? Did Philemon forgive the runaway slave? What happened? Well, according to church tradition, not only does Philemon take him back, not only does reconciliation take place. And by the way, reconciliation is a restored relationship based on restored trust. Remember that. Reconciliation is a restored relationship based on restored trust. And according to Eusebius and the early church fathers, not only is Onesimus taken back, but he becomes the pastor of Calvary Chapel at Colossae. He becomes the pastor of the church. And he faces brutal opposition and unrelenting persecution. And according to Eusebius, he will die a martyr's death in service to the Lord Jesus. He's reconciled to his master. But then he's reconciled to God forever. By the way, there are always three elements to reconciliation. If reconciliation is ever going to happen, it always includes confession of sin to God and the ones offended. It always includes forgiveness by God and the ones offended. And it always means the establishment of a new relationship. And that, my friends, is the story of forgiveness and the runaway slave. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this time and thanks for grace. Thanks for forgiveness. Thanks that we have an opportunity to come to grips when we do wrong things. And we're able to plead for one another. And we're able to help one another. And we're able to encourage one another. And we're able to find reasons to stay together instead of grow apart. In Jesus' name. And all the saints said, all right, let's stand.